Let us turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. This morning, our passage is from the book of Hebrews, once again, as it will be for quite some time, I think. Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, we've looked at this passage for the last two weeks. This is the last week we're going to be looking at the fourth, this section of the fourth chapter of Hebrews. I, I said I wanted to spend about three weeks in this passage. The first week we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, but really our attention was then turned to Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, and we talked about the creation of the Sabbath day and the theme of rest that's found in, in God's Word for, for God's people. Last week then we uh, did examine this text a little more closely. This week we're just going to focus in on uh, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12-13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of scripture. We do pray this morning that your spirit would work through the reading and preaching of the word to feed and nourish your children and to call any lost sheep home to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, earlier in our series on the book of Hebrews, I began a sermon by asking, what do you think of when you think of angels? If you remember, the author of Hebrews was very concerned that his original audience not put anything or anyone, including other heavenly beings, such as angels, above Jesus Christ. And so uh, he spent some time talking about how Jesus is better than the angels. And I began that sermon by asking, what do you think of when you think of angels? On Easter morning, I preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I began that sermon by asking, what do you think of when you think of Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ in your mind? Well, now we come to a point in the book of Hebrews where I believe it's worth asking a third question. What do you think of when you think of the Bible? What do you make of this book, which Christians call holy? This collection of writings from over 40 different human authors written over a broad geographical area, written over a span of about 15 to 1800 years and preserved for us today some 2000 years after its final pages were put down. What do you think about the Bible? Some people view the Bible as simply a collection of human writings. There's nothing special about it. It might have some moral truth to it, some historical value, but it is certainly not the Word of God. That's one opinion that people have. Another view that some people have, unfortunately, even within the walls of Christianity, is that they view it as primarily a human writing, a human work. But they would say it does contain some divine revelation of God 
to us, but they would certainly balk at the idea that every word within this book is the word of God. Some would believe that the Bible is not in and of itself the word of God, but when you pick it up and it speaks to your heart, then and only that then does it become the word of God. Some believe that the Bible is mostly the word of God, but there are parts in it where the human authors influenced or perhaps misunderstood the guidance of the Holy Spirit and wrote down some erroneous things, some things that were not truly the word of God. Now, usually, for those who hold to that view, usually it's the parts of the Bible that they don't like or that they find culturally insensitive that they say is not truly part of the word of God. Historical Christianity views the Bible as the word of God. Every part of it breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Yes, God used human authors, but what those human authors wrote is exactly as God intended them to write. The Bible is inspired, meaning it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It is inerrant, meaning it is without error. It is sufficient, meaning it has everything that we need for faith and life within its pages. And it is authoritative, meaning it is the ultimate rule, the ultimate authority on all matters of faith and life. It is the word of God himself. It is his holy, special revelation of himself, of his law, of his attributes, his character, his nature. It is his revelation of his plan of salvation given to us. It is the gospel. It is the good news of how God the Father through God the Son, and by the power of God the Holy Spirit, is saving a people to belong to Him. The whole Bible is the very revelation of God Himself centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ in saving people from their sins. That's the position of this church. That's the position of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. That has been the position of just about every Christian for nearly 2,000 years. And that's the position that the author of Hebrews takes. Now, last week we examined the full text of Hebrews 1, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. A text that first reminded us of the rest that we have in this life when we trust in Jesus Christ. A rest from fear, a rest from doubt, a rest from carrying the burdens of our sin, a rest from the burden of guilt, and a resting in the assurance that we are indeed eternally secure in the arms of Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him. And then the text reminded us of the rest that we will have in the age to come when we spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. But then our text ends with these two verses and the call or the reminder and even the warning that was, uh, and, 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 and this call, reminder and warning was given, uh, 
to say to us that in order for us to receive this holy rest in Jesus Christ, one must not only hear the gospel, one must not only believe in Christ, one must accept the gospel and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Remember, we said faith in the biblical sense is far more than just believing. Faith is receiving and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. And so our verses this morning concluded last week's sermon with the great truth that for those who receive and trust in the gospel, those who receive and trust in Christ, the word of God accomplishes their salvation. But for those who reject it, those who hear it and do not place their trust in the gospel, the word of God accomplishes their judgment. That's the big picture view of Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. That's why verses 12 and 13 are included in this portion of the book of Hebrews. But verses 12 and 13 are such a rich, wonderful statement about the Word of God, uh, the Bible, that I wanted to just go back and examine these two verses by themselves so that we can see what the author of Hebrews is saying about the very nature of the Word of God. And there are two things that I want us to see about the Bible this morning from our text. First, we want to see what the Bible is, and then we want to see what the Bible does. So first, what the Bible is. What What is the scriptures? The author of Hebrews says in verse 12 that the Bible is, first he says, it's living. The Bible is living. What does that mean? Here in the book of Hebrews, the word living simply means to be alive. Later on in Hebrews chapter 7, the author will use the same word to describe Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, that he is without beginning of days or the end of life. The Bible is the eternal word of God. It is alive. It's not some inanimate object. It's not just a book that sits on your shelf and only becomes alive when you pick it up and read it and the Spirit uses it to speak to your hearts. It is, in and of itself, a product of the one true and living God. And therefore, it is, in and of itself, a living word. Now, what does that mean for us on a practical level? I really do believe that Christians could stand to recapture a view of the Bible that embraces the truth that it is a living word. Because it means that the Bible is always fresh. It's always relevant. It's never a dead word. It's never out of date or out of style. And I was thinking about this and thinking about how much time and energy and resources many churches put into making themselves relevant. They build these huge buildings that that basically resemble anything but what we think of when we think of a church building. They invest in the best sound systems, the best lighting. They spend the big bucks on the best video screens. They make sure they have the most hip and charismatic pastor that they can find, and I thank you for not doing that when you found a pastor. They they uh, 
they make sure that they've got the best band around. They make sure that they're playing the newest songs. They reamp, they revise, and quite frankly, I believe that many of them rewrite the Bible so as to make it as palpable to the world as possible. All in an effort to stay relevant. The problem with this, and this is not merely an issue of preferring one style of church over another. The problem with all of this is, so often in those settings, the plain and simple teaching and preaching of the Holy Bible, primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ, gets buried under the cultural muck and junk. And brothers and sisters, the Bible is living And therefore, it's always relevant to us. It was relevant in Moses' day. It was relevant in King David's day. It was relevant in the first century when the author wrote this book of Hebrews. And it's relevant to us today. We don't need to repackage it. We don't need to try to make it more marketable. Do we want to be a relevant church? then we have to preach a relevant message. And the message that the Bible teaches as the living word of God from the living God himself is this, that God is holy and we are sinners. And therefore, we are infinitely guilty before the infinitely holy God. And we need a savior. And Jesus Christ is that savior who has fully paid for all of our sins so that we can be in a right relationship to God and have eternal life. And if we trust in Him alone for our salvation, that message, that central message of the, of, of the scriptures will bring us eternal life. That is never an irrelevant message. It's never a message that will not be needed by human beings. It's never a message that is out of style. The Bible is the living Word of God. Secondly, we see that the Bible is active. This means, quite literally, that it has the power to cause something to happen. The Bible is the word of God. And as the word of God, it is able to accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. This is what we talked about last week at the end of our sermon. You often hear people quote the verse, the word of God will not return void. Isaiah 55 verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's a 100% true. God's word will not return void. It is active. It has the power to accomplish what it sets out to do. And as we heard last week, it either accomplishes judgment or it accomplishes salvation. There's no person alive who hears the gospel, 
who hears the Bible preached, who hears the Word of God explained to them by another Christian, who picks up the Bible and reads it for their own. There's not a person alive who does not have the Word of God do something to them. It either condemns them as they reject it, or it accomplishes their salvation as they hear the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ in faith. So the word of God is living and it is active. It accomplishes what God intends it to accomplish. Well, we also see that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, we often see in the Bible uh, the word of God being described as a sword. Ephesians 6 Uh, The armor of God chapter says that we are to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Or maybe you can think of Revelation chapter 1. John has a vision of the glorified Christ, and he's describing what he sees, using symbolic language, of course. And he says that coming out of Christ's mouth was a two-edged sword. The Word of Christ as a two-edged sword. We hear the author of Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword that has ever existed. That it is able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow. And that is, we should be clear on this, that is not a statement on the makeup or the human, the construct of the, of the human person. So that verse is not saying that there is a difference between a person's soul and a person's spirit. Uh, there really isn't a difference. In the scriptures, soul and spirit are used uh, fairly synony- synonymously. They're the same thing. But the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that the Bible has the power to pierce right to the heart of who we are. It's deeply penetrating. It has the power to reach into our innermost being. One commentator said, it lays grip to the whole person. It gets inside of us. And once it pierces to our innermost being, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So now we're transitioning from what the Bible is to what the Bible does. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, And what does it do? It discerns the thoughts and intentions of all who hear or read it. Now to say that the Bible discerns the heart, that word discernment in the Greek is a legal term. It means that the Bible has the power, the ability, the capacity to make a legal judgment. Just as a judge or a jury has the power to make a judgment that carries legal weight, the Bible is able to make a judicial statement on our hearts. And that's what it does. And I think it's no accident that the Bible is called a two-edged sword in relation to its discerning power. For those who hear and reject the word, they will be pierced, they will be cut with one side of that sword, the edge of judgment. The legal declaration on them that the scriptures will make, is guilty. But for those who receive the word in faith, who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ for their salvation, they are cut with the edge of God's infinite grace and his mercy 
and the legal declaration that the word of God makes on their heart is not guilty. More than just not guilty, though. It makes the declaration that we are righteous in the sight of God, justified, clean, holy. This is what the word of God is, and this is what the word of God does. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it accomplishes both judgment and salvation for those who hear and read it. And verse 13 of our text this morning sums it all up by reminding us all that no one is hidden from the sight of God. We are all exposed. We will all one day give an account, and that account will be decided by, as we heard last week, whether or not we receive the gospel, the word of God, in faith, or we reject it. For all who reject the Bible, the word of God, the gospel, if you reject it, you must give an account on the last day as to all of your works, both good and evil. And the terrible news about that is that no amount of good works can atone for the evil that you have done. Every lie, every slanderous word, every malicious thought, every lustful glance, every moment of envy or jealousy, every moment where you failed to show patience or thought a hateful thought, or failed to love your neighbor as yourself, or failed to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Any single one of those sins is an, is an infinite offense against the holy God and worthy of eternal punishment. But the gospel, the central message of the Bible, The good news of Jesus Christ is that for those who hear the word, those who read the scriptures, those who hear the word of God preached and trust in Christ for their salvation, your account has been settled by Jesus Christ. You will stand before the judgment throne of God on the last day, and what God will see in you is not your boundless amount of sin, but rather what will be seen is Christ's good works, Christ's righteousness, Christ's death and resurrection, and it will be counted unto you as if you were the one who lived a life that always pleased the Father, that you were the one who died the cursed death on the cross to make atonement for your sins. And you will hear God say, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's not because of anything that you did. It is because of what Jesus did for you. The word of God, the living, the active, the sharper than any two-edged sword word of God, has the power to accomplish this for you. And what you do with it, what you do with the word of God, whether you reject it or receive it, will determine the verdict declared over you on that final day. I'm going to 
I'm going to go off, go off script a little bit right now. I was thinking about this, praying about it. It's never safe for a preacher to veer from his manuscript. Uh, there's a reason why we use them so we don't get ourselves into trouble. But I was thinking of what all of this means for us. And I, I just hope and pray that as we read about what the Bible is and what it does, that we would just be a church of people who love and cherish the Word of God, who hold it as our sole authority, who view it as sufficient for everything we need in faith and life as individuals and as a church, who see it as a precious, life-giving gift from God to think that the infinite, holy God would condescend to us and give us his word that we can read it and know that it is living and that it gives us life, that it is active and it will accomplish our salvation in our lives. It's my hope and prayer that all of us, myself included, because I don't always live out my theology in my life, that we would run to the Scriptures, that we would look forward to reading this Word, that we would ground our lives in it, that we would pick this book up and read it and remember who it is who's speaking to us, that we would cherish it, that it would become precious to us, that we would study it and meditate it and hide it in our hearts, that it would become the foundation of our own individual lives, our families' lives, our churches' lives, and that we would be transformed by it. It's my hope and prayer that we, as the people of God here at Canal Salines, would be a people of the book, would be a people who truly value this Word of God more than anything else. That's my prayer, that's my plea to you, that's my plea to myself to remember what this book is, who it is who's given it to us, and what this book does for us. As we close this morning, I just want to share with you all a few stories from throughout the church's history, stories that I believe bear testimony to the power of the Holy Scriptures in the lives of God's people. Stories of how the Bible completely transformed lives, how it did not return void, how it accomplished salvation for the people of God. Many of you will know the name St. Augustine. Augustine of Hippo, the North African church bishop in the early church, a man who was widely considered to be one of the most influential Christian thinkers since the death of the apostles. Well, he tells the story of his conversion to Christianity in in his book, The Confessions. Augustine lived a life of rebellion against God. Uh, He had a believing mother, Monica, who prayed for him day in and day out. And while Augustine loved his mother dearly, uh, he lived a life that caused her much grief and pain and sorrow. He was promiscuous. He would be enthralled and entrapped by philosophies of the world, things like this. And yet, when you read the Confessions, his book, The Confessions, you have this unique feeling that all along God is at work in his life. And finally, in his mid-30s, 
after studying the Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, and others, after seeing, and, and, and after seeing a close friend of his convert to Christianity, Augustine had a life-changing experience. After speaking to his recently converted friend, Augustine says that he went out to a place where he could be alone to contemplate the truth of the gospel. And he found himself sitting under a fig tree, wrestling with the truth of God, wrestling with who Jesus Christ is. And he began to hear a voice of a child coming from a nearby house. And the child was chanting, take up and read, take up and read. And upon hearing this voice, Augustine got up. He ran to his house and he picked up the book of Romans And he turned to Romans chapter 13, verse 13, which said, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's what Augustine read. Romans 13, verse 13. And he wrote in his confessions, no further would I read, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. He was convicted of a sin. And in a moment, in a moment, he repented and believed in Christ, trusted in Christ for his salvation. And and how was it that the Lord did that work? Through the reading of the word of God. Through the, the, the word of God penetrating into the very heart of who he was. And he turned in faith to Christ. One more story. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther a man who God used to bring reformation to Christ's church throughout the world, a man who we as a reformed Presbyterian church owe a great debt of gratitude towards. His own conversion is an amazing testimony to the power of the word of God. Luther was a Catholic monk monk for many years. And as a monk, he was constantly wrestling with guilt. He would often do battle in his own mind with himself and with, according to him, the devil. He never had peace. Try as he might, he knew he was never good enough to earn his salvation. And it led to him being constantly spiritually depressed and downtrodden. He said once that he could truly relate with Psalm 22, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He spoke of hating God because he knew that within himself he did not have the righteousness that God required of him to have salvation. Then after being sent to the town of Wittenberg, Germany, to be a theology teacher, Martin Luther read and meditated upon the book of Romans, and in particular Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, The righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther said, At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is not is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely faith. 
And he said, here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that have been flung open. By reading and meditating on the word, both of these men, these giants, so to speak, of church history, men through whom God did so much good for Christ's church, both of these men and many others like them came to saving faith by the reading and hearing of the word of God. Doesn't that speak volumes, brothers and sisters, to the great truth that the word of God is indeed living and active? That it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the core of who we are? There's not a single Christian alive today or ever who was brought to faith in Jesus Christ apart from the reading or the sharing or the preaching of the word of God. It is the gospel of our salvation. It is the foundation of the Christian church to whom Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And again, it's my prayer that all of you, all of us really, myself included, will dedicate ourselves to the word of God because it is indeed precious and life-giving, a wonderful gift. It's the good news. It is the gospel of our salvation.